Well, I guess Rod is somewhat right, because I do have a different type of a sermon for you this morning. Normally, we go through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, sometimes even just looking at one verse at a time. But today, we are going to do the opposite extreme, that we're going to preach through the Old Testament, meaning all of it, the, the whole thing, the whole Old Testament in one message. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to come, obviously, anywhere close to looking at every single verse or even every book, but I want to give you the message of the Old Testament. I want to help you grasp in a clear but concise way what the Old Testament is about, the whole thing. Do you know what that is? Some Christians don't know anything about the Old Testament, which means their knowledge of the New Testament is handicapped, like trying to learn multiplication when you don't even know addition. Other Christians, all they know are just the main stories and characters of the Old Testament. Noah and the ark, Jonah and the fish, Daniel and the lion's den. But that's it. Their knowledge of the Old Testament never rises above that Sunday school level. But did you know the, the Old Testament is not just a random collection of tall tales meant to teach some little spiritual lesson? You know, these were real people and real stories, but God had them recorded in such a way for a reason. There is an overarching message to the Old Testament, and it's a message that relates to all mankind. It's not just for Israel. You read the Old Testament, you might think it's just then that the history book of ancient Israel, and to be sure, it has plenty of that. But again, working in and through Israel, God was revealing something bigger, something deeper about his plans for this world. There is a greater purpose here, and and you need to know it. I mean, think about the Old Testament. It's God's revelation, his self-disclosure to you. It takes up about two-thirds of your Bible. You think you would want to know what it has to say. What, what is the message? What's it really about? So I'm going to show you. We're going to do, you might say, a road trip tour through the Old Testament. Maybe inspired by the fact that our family just took a, a road trip of Northern California a couple weeks ago. About 2,000 miles in the top part of the state. And we covered a lot of ground and we're able to see just the breadth of the northern part of California. And it was fun to do. And let's do that for the Old Testament. We don't have time to explore any side roads. We're not going to be getting off any off ramps. We're going to stick to the main highway. But this highway is like a thread that runs through all the Old Testament. It connects all the books together with this central message. And we want to discover what that is. That's our plan for today. It'll take all of our time and and then some. And so we just need to start. You can turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. This is, you might say, the on-ramp to the central message. And Genesis chapter 3. As you're turning, you might further wonder, why, why exactly are we doing this study this morning? And that, as I was alluding to Rod, I do have a specific reason. But that, you will have to wait for the end. For now, just turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 1 and 2 recounts, I trust you know, the creation of the world. And for two chapters, everything is good. But that doesn't last long. Adam and Eve sin against God. They fall prey to the temptation of the devil. And so God judges. He curses Satan. He curses Adam and Eve. He curses the earth itself. And now life in this world is fallen and hard and bitter. And it leads to death. This death is both physical and spiritual. First comes a physical death, which is a separation of body and soul. Your body returns to the dust of the earth as as judgment. But that's not the greater death. 
The greater death is the second death, a spiritual death, which is the separation of your soul from, from God. And that is far worse. And the moment Adam and Eve sinned, that this chasm opened up before them, separating them and God, and there's nothing they could do to cross it. God is holy. They no longer were holy. They're no longer fit to dwell in his presence. And all people now inherit this spiritual death. We're all born cut off from God. And there's nothing we can do to cross over. It's like standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon and your only hope to get us to the other side is just to jump. Meaning you have no hope. Our, our separation from God is hopeless. But immediately and, and thankfully, God's own character of mercy is seen. And he is a righteous and just judge, but he's also a merciful and gracious savior. And that's evidence in the fact that Adam and Eve did not immediately die physically. They should have, but God in mercy gave them the first gift, which was the gift of time. Time to live out their days on earth. God did so and continues to do so in order that people might have the time to find the door to salvation. And indeed, it was always God's plan to provide such a door that not all humanity would be lost in death. But this door of salvation cannot be found in ourselves. It's not something we must accomplish. Rather, God himself will accomplish it for us and show us the way. We must simply receive it. And what God would accomplish to redeem and restore this world after two good chapters, it's all downhill from there. But God would redeem and restore this world and would all come through a son. This is a passage I, I trust you know, but really appreciate its significance because even as God renders judgment, he gives a hope of restoration. Genesis 3.15 is the, is the verse. It says, as God is cursing the devil. But then he says this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. And you shall bruise him on the heel. Ever since the fall, sin, Satan, death itself have ruled this world. It shouldn't be this way, but it is. But not forever. One day their rule will be vanquished and, and God himself will visibly rule the world once again. That day won't come about though by Adam or by Eve, but rather by a, a seed of the woman. A descendant would come and although afflicted by the devil, he would have the power to deal him a, a fatal blow and put an end to his reign on the earth. This is just a sliver of God's promise. It's just the beginning, but it's, it's a promise nonetheless. And this is, you might say, the on-ramp to the grand message of the Old Testament. If you had to summarize the Old Testament in just one word, what would it be? It wouldn't be history. It would be the word promise. The Old Testament is all about promise. And the rest of the Old Testament from this point forward records that the progressive revelation of God's promises to restore this world, to fix this world, and to reign. This world is wrong. It's out of order. God is the creator, and he's the only sovereign, but now sin and Satan and death are reigning over his creation. And to be sure, that's only because he allows it, 
And God does so because he has a plan of salvation that will show off his greater glory and magnify his name. But as the Old Testament continues, we get the progressive unfolding of this plan. And it all comes by way of promise. And so we're going to continue on this highway now and see where it leads us. We're going to trace this theme, this notion of promise in the Old Testament. Already we know that God's promise of deliverance centers on a seed, a descendant of the woman. Well, Genesis 4, Adam and Eve have a seed, Cain, but it turns out he is not that promised seed. He's not a giver of life. He's a taker of life. He murders his brother Abel, showing he's not of God. He's of his father, the devil. He's a murderer from the beginning. But already it shows just how far man would sink in depravity, that the first generation is characterized by murder. That only continues in the account of the flood in Genesis 6, where man's immorality and violence has reached a fever pitch. No seed has come to make things right. Things have only gotten worse. And so God's wrath is kindled, and he just judges the whole world and wipes out everyone. Almost. Because his mercy is found again in that Noah and his family are preserved alive. Which simply means that hope is preserved. The fact that there's still hope that a seed of the woman will come and fix this world. We can fast forward now to Genesis 12. You can turn there. And in Genesis 12, we don't find the seed, but we find the one through whom the seed would come. And that's Abraham. And in Abraham, we find the promises of God amplified. Just as you can't ignore Genesis 3.15 as a foundational promise of God. So you can't ignore Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Here God unilaterally calls Abram or Abraham to himself. And he issues him all of these promises. Look at Genesis 12.1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives, from your father's house to the land, which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Your God promises to Abraham a land, a seed, and a blessing. And really, all three of those promises converge. God was going to give Abraham this plot of land, which would be populated by his seed or descendants, and through them, the whole world would be blessed. A special note is that last phrase in verse 3, where he says, In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just Abraham's family, all would be blessed. We have this promise now of blessing. Which when you think about it, it's it's a promise of happiness. Not as the world defines. This blessing, you might say, is the happiness of God. Which is all about a holy life of joy lived in right relation to God. It's It's a promise of restoration. And now this blessing is going to come to all the families of the earth in Abraham. We learn though, as time goes on, Abraham himself is not the promised seed. Rather though, through him, that seed is still coming. The promise of God to restore all things now funnels through Abraham and to his descendants. 
God makes this clear as later on he gives Abraham a child, even in his old age, a miraculous son, Isaac. And then God later says to Abraham, Genesis twenty-two eighteen, he now says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The seed promise lives on. Abraham's not that seed, but it, it passes on to his son after him. Isaac, in turn, is not the seed, but the promise likewise passes on to him. Jacob is not the seed, but the promise passes to him and his descendants. And God reiterates to all of them. He says to Jacob, for example, in Genesis twenty-eight fourteen, he says, in you and in your descendants, literally seed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And God still hasn't precisely revealed what this blessing entails, how it will come about, but he just keeps repeating that through this seed, all the nations will be blessed. Hope is still alive that this seed will come and make things right. Well, time goes on. Jacob has 12 sons. They turn into the 12 tribes of Israel. And we're left with high hopes that through this people, this chosen nation, this collective seed of Abraham, God would would do great things, would restore the world, bring blessing to the nations. If that's going to happen, though, first, this nation itself needs redemption because they've found, they find themselves enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. So God raises up another chosen servant, Moses. Through a course of 10 plagues, he forces Pharaoh to let the people go. And, and a whole nation of slaves walks away free. How did this happen? What, what did Israel do to gain this or contribute to this? Nothing. This was all God's power and grace which in itself is already a picture of how God would redeem and restore and bring blessing. However, he's going to do it through this chosen seed. One thing's clear. It was going to be God's doing. He would accomplish this. All right, now you can turn to Exodus 19. Because after God delivers Egypt, or rather Israel, from slavery to Egypt, he doesn't quite set them free. but Rather, he binds them to himself. He brings his people to Mount Sinai. And here we take a a quantum leap forward in the progressive unfolding of God's plan to redeem. Really think about it from, from the first or for the first time since creation, God is going to dwell with man again. Not fully. But in God's relationship with Israel, we, we catch just another glimpse of what it looks like to be blessed, to live in right relationship with the creator God. At Sinai, God enters into covenant with the nation itself. And then he tells them, for example, Exodus 19, five through six, he says, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. At Sinai, God himself comes down to be near his people. And he, he formally binds himself to Israel as a chosen nation. He alone would be their God. They would be his people. But still, don't forget that there's purpose here. The reason he's doing this is that they might bring God's blessing to all the nations. God aims to use this 
collective seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bring blessing to the world. But if that's going to happen, still some things need to change. That's because Israel was not actually a holy nation. They were holy in position. God called them. God consecrated them. But they were not holy in practice. And far from it. If they were really to be his people, they needed to reflect God's holy character. And so what does God do? Well, first he gives them his law. Reflected chiefly in the Ten Commandments. Showing them this is what it looks like to live rightly before your God. But God knows these people are sinners. And to keep from consuming them, he gives them a a sacrificial system that their sins might be covered. He's showing them that if they're going to dwell with his God, their sin has to be dealt with. And God also gives them a tabernacle, a visible representation of God in their midst. And so as Israel obeyed God and kept his covenant, walking in his ways, they would be richly blessed in this land. And then all the nations around them would be drawn in to the worship of the one true God. So far, that's the plan. That's the unfolding of the plan. That's the ideal. That's, that's how it's, it should happen. But if you know your Old Testament, you know that would never happen. That would never take place. And though this too is part of God's plan. It just Israel would never live up to God's standards set for them. This is made clear from the very beginning of Israel's history. I mean, literally as Moses is giving the Ten Commandments, what do the people do? They start worshiping a golden calf. Like, they did not waste any time. And later that same generation refused to enter the promised land. The land God gave to them, they refused. Why? Out of fear and unbelief. Now, far from a holy nation, this is a nation of unbelievers, And so in judgment, that entire generation fell in the wilderness for they lacked the one thing God required of them, which was faith. Now, another generation arose, though. Hope is never extinguished. Thankfully, they were a faithful generation under the leadership of Joshua. They they finally entered that promised land. And think about that, that this promise that God gave to Abraham 400 years prior finally coming to an initial fulfillment that this seed has multiplied. They're now living in the land. And finally, that this hope can begin in earnest that this collective seed of Israel living in the land might finally bring blessing to all the nations. Remember, that's the promise, right? So, okay, they're in the land. Let's see it. But see it, we do not. Because as soon as Israel enters the land, they go astray. Far from being a lighthouse where they're they're just showing off their God, Israel puts the light out and enters the same darkness as all the nations around them. They're known by the same immorality and idolatry as the world. And as a result, God curses them. He warned them that curses would follow if they disobeyed and went after other gods. And and in, in this time, He cursed them by handing them over to their enemies. He allowed them to be oppressed by the nations around them for 300 years. Appreciate that. That's longer than America has been a country. They were just oppressed in this land for 300 years. And God 
hands them over. He was not without mercy, as during this time he raised up judges to deliver them periodically as they humbled themselves, as they repented and returned to their God, he would send a judge to deliver them for a time. This is a saving God. This is a redeeming God. The question though is, will he find faith on the earth? And in the time of the judges, the answer is mostly no. I mean, there were a few bright spots of faith, but overall the refrain from the book of Judges rings true. Like a last verse, Judges 21, verse 25. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I mean, in reality, God was their king. They should have done what was right in his eyes. But they did the opposite. And such is mankind's heart of rebellion. This nation itself still needed salvation. But instead of turning back to God as their king, they thought the answer came in a human king. Israel reasoned that, you know, the reason they were suffering so much oppression in the land was because they just didn't have a king. All they needed was a human king, one to to lead them in war and fight their battles. Then they'd finally be blessed. And so the people come together and now demand a king. God himself, though, knows what's really going on here. As he says through Samuel, who is the last judge in 1 Samuel 8, verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. If only the people just listened to the voice of their God. They would have realized that the reason they were not blessed in the land was not the absence of a king, but the presence of their sin. If they just sought their God earnestly, he would have protected them. He would have fought their battles. He would have blessed them. Even still, though, God in his great mercy would continue to tolerate this wicked, unbelieving, rebellious people. And he would accommodate the request for a king. And here we enter the new phase, the next phase, the time of the kings. And we take that next quantum leap forward in the progress of God's redemptive plan. Because even though the people demanded a king for the wrong reasons, God knew that the people actually needed a king. God knew that man in his fallen condition could only be saved by a mediator. That man would only, that mankind would only ever be led into God's blessing through a representative ruler. You know, this people, Israel, even though they were called by God, they were still like lost, wayward sheep. Left to their own devices, they would continually go astray and, and just sink into immorality and idolatry and wickedness. I mean, that the previous 300 years of their history prove that. Without a doubt, what they really needed then was a godly leader, a righteous king who could go before them and not just lead them in battle, but lead them in faith and obedience. And the path to God's blessing would go through such a righteous king. And so next, God gives his people just a taste of a righteous king. Not in Saul, but in who? 
David. And here we get to, after Abraham, the most significant figure of the Old Testament. You know, on the outside, David was nothing special. He was young. He was short. Saul, in comparison, was tall and strong and handsome. He's the type of person the world would choose to be king. And Saul proved he could lead Israel in battle. It's just that God required more from his king. God's king must also lead the people in faith and obedience and worship. And that's something Saul could not do. But David could. Because he was a man after God's own heart. And in David, Israel received a picture of God's righteous king. This is what God wants from a representative ruler. And this is what God can do through a representative righteous ruler. You know, as David was made king for the first time in Israel's history, and nearly the only time, the whole nation was led in the pure, unified worship of God. Think about that. All their history so far, and only now are they being truly led in pure, unified worship. It's not surprising then that through David, God would greatly advance the football down the field in the unfolding of his plan of redemption. So turn now to 2 Samuel 7. The next stop, 2 Samuel 7. If you've learned anything from the Old Testament so far, it's just that mankind desperately needs a savior. Even a consecrated nation like Israel is hopeless apart from it and will only sink into depravity. We've learned, however, that such salvation is coming and is coming through a seed, a seed of the woman, a seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now that that promise funnels down yet again through David. This deliverer will now also be a seed of David. And God's promises to David here are second only to his promises to Abraham. Here, God reiterates the land, the seed, the blessing promise to David. But here, God goes far beyond what he ever promised to Abraham. He's going to unfold even more. Look at 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. He says to David, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant, literally seed, after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall never depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. God gives David now a series of promises. You see how they all revolve around this descendant, this seed. It's the same word all the way from back in Genesis 3.15. A seed or son of David will come and he will be the one to build God's house. He will be God's beloved son. God will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
Now, there's certainly a near sense fulfillment to all these promises in David's son Solomon. He's the one to, to build a literal temple for God. But there's also no doubt a far sense to all these promises. As the everlasting nature of these promises are stressed over and over again. A greater seed of David is coming and he will usher in a kingdom of everlasting righteousness. David himself added to the anticipation of this king as he wrote prophetically during this time. Think of all of his Psalms like like Psalm 2. And David tells of an anointed son, a coming king, who will be God's very son. And he says, to him, all the nations are given as an inheritance. His wrath will soon be kindled as he will be the one to bring judgment to all the nations. But then Psalm 2.12 ends and he says, but how blessed are all those who take refuge in him, in this anointed king. You see, blessing is still available and is still coming to the nations. It will come now through this king and those who take refuge in him. All these promises to David leave us with high hopes for his descendants. Because now we're just waiting for a son of David to come along and he will be the one to fix the world, to restore this whole planet first through Israel and then all the nations will find a blessing, a peace, a restoration as God's savior, the seed finally comes. And those hopes seem to come to fruition in David's first literal seed, Solomon, the next king. Because at first, Solomon seeks the Lord. He builds the temple. He leads Israel in a golden age. But in time, we learn that Solomon is not the seed. He would not be that son of David to bring in the kingdom of righteousness. Solomon himself went astray from the one true God later in his life. Things got so bad that after Solomon, Israel divided into two. Two nations, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. They had two separate lines of kings. And what follows from here is another three to four hundred year period of basically lawlessness, idolatry, and unbelief. Even though Israel is now ruled by kings, they're really not much better than the time of the judges. Because neither Israel nor Judah are truly walking with God as their king. They're not obeying his laws. They're not keeping his covenant. King after king comes and goes. Descendant of David after descendant. But none are proving to be anywhere close to this righteous king who will come and and make all things right. No, but instead, every single king of northern Israel is extremely wicked and vile, going so far as to participate in child sacrifice to the pagan gods. That's coming from Israel. And the, the kings of Judah are not that much better. There are a few bright spots again, but in total, the picture was bleak. And things got so bad. Israel filled the land with so much bloodshed and immorality and idolatry that God finally decided it's just time to pull the plug on Israel's tenure in this land. And destruction and desolation would come. First through the Assyrians in the north, and then second through the Babylonians in the south. Both Israel and Judah 
would be destroyed, be taken captive to foreign lands. The temple itself was completely obliterated. Jerusalem was basically leveled and the land was lost. And God told them this would happen. He warned them that such curses would come upon them if they went after foreign gods. And the time of patience ran out. Everything was lost. Again, you can't fail to appreciate. Just think about so far the the unfolding of God's plan through this nation. You can't fail to appreciate how big a blow the exile was to the national identity of Israel. I thought they were God's chosen nation. I thought he gave them this land. I thought he consecrated the temple. How could God let all this happen? Well, God did not let this happen. God made this happen as a judgment on them for their unbelief. And everything was lost except one thing, hope. And that's because despite all of their sin and rebellion, God's promises cannot be nullified. And so despite losing the land, losing the temple, God did preserve one thing, really the only thing that mattered, and that was the seed of David, the descendant of David. The line of David was preserved. That's all that matters. That's how the book of 2 Kings ends. Judah is in exile. The temple is destroyed. But the final word of 2 Kings is that a descendant of David, he's in Babylon, but he's alive and well. Which means there's still hope. It may not happen tomorrow, but there's still hope that a son of David can come and, and make things right. Restore Israel. Bless the nations. This seed of David then became Israel's only hope. He always was their only hope, only now they knew it. He's their only hope. And so it was surrounding this time, a little before, a little during, a little after, that God used his prophets to make sure Israel knew once for all that this seed of David was truly their only hope. Throughout these times, God sent Israel and her kings prophet after prophet, in part to rebuke them and warn them of coming judgment, but also to reveal Israel's only hope. It was in the seed, the seed of Eve, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the seed of David, this anointed one, this Messiah. And this brings us now on this highway, this road trip through the message, the hope The promise of the Old Testament, this brings us to the vast prophetic books. And they have a lot to say about this coming king. Let me give you a sampling. If you're real fast, you can turn with me. But we'll start in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah has maybe the most to say. He speaks of a child born of a virgin who will be a sign of God's promise. And later he says of this child, this seed... Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. A child's coming and we find he'll be more than a son of man. He'll be a son of God. 
Even God himself, Emmanuel, Isaiah reveals, God with us, come down to deliver. And the first mission of this child would be to deliver Israel, to bring them the promise of redemption. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord our righteousness. Israel and her kings always failed because they were never righteous. Not perfectly. None of them. Not even one. But this righteous king will come and he will make them righteous. And finally, through this king, God will do for Israel what they could not do for themselves. This hope of salvation is expressed then in a new covenant, which this righteous branch will bring about. Jeremiah and Ezekiel both write extensively about this new covenant where God will do for them what they need. He'll take out their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh. He'll write his law on their heart. He'll cause his spirit to dwell within them. And then all of them will know, will truly know God. For he will forgive their sins and remember their iniquity no more. That's what Israel had to expect with the coming of now the son of David. But it's not just for Israel. Because it was always God's plan to bless the nations through this seed. And Isaiah affirms that. You can go Isaiah 49, verse 6. And Isaiah affirms this of this coming king who he refers to as the servant of God. Isaiah 49, 6 adds that God says to him, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It's not enough for this coming Messiah to redeem a remnant of Israel. No, he's also going to take for himself a remnant from all the nations. And then God will unify all of his people together under one new covenant, under this one shepherd king. That's what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 34, 23 and 24. God says, then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. This second David, you might say, is coming to do this. And we talk about anticipation. Israel is receiving these promises as they sit in devastation. They've lost everything. The temple, the land, their national identity. They've lost it all. Humanly speaking, they see no path back to national restoration or individual salvation. But a narrow road exists and it runs right through this coming seed. He gives all people all the hope they could ever need. He will be the one to set things right, to, to fix the whole world and to overturn the rule of sin and Satan and death itself. 
And perhaps the grandest promise in all the Old Testament comes here. I'll just read it. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Where Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. See, the Son of Man will be the one to end all other kingdoms. All other reigns will end. And that includes the reign of sin and Satan and even death. And he will usher in a kingdom of everlasting righteousness. But how will, we do, how will he do this? How will this seed bring this about? Don't forget that very first promise in Genesis 3.15. That this seed would be the one to conquer the devil, but at the same time, he himself will be bruised on the heel, meaning he will suffer. And indeed, the prophets go on to reveal much of the suffering of this king. This servant of God would suffer, not because he lacks power, and not because he's a sinner, but he would suffer to redeem his people. That much is made clear in their own sacrificial system. A sacrifice, a substitute sacrifice was always required. And God will provide yet again. You can turn to Isaiah 53. You know, this perfect king who would also be a priest, Psalm 110. He would go on to offer up himself as this perfect once for all substitute sacrifice. In the place of his people. He would go on to be their sin bearer. Exchanging his own righteousness for their sinfulness. Then nowhere is this substitutionary atonement of this Messiah made more clear than Isaiah 53. The whole chapter, but just look at verses 4 through 6 for now. Speaking of this coming servant of God. Isaiah says, surely our griefs. He himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. God says later, he would be pleased to crush this servant if he would render himself a guilt offering for the people. This is simply the necessary and only way to redeem those held captive to sin, to Satan, and to death. But God would accomplish it. That the zeal that the Lord of hosts would do this all through this son, this seed. Well, at this point, I think we've, we've covered enough. Even though, keep in mind, we've barely even scratched the surface of what the Old Testament says about this coming Messiah. This is probably not even 
of what the Old Testament says of him. Not to mention all the pictures from the Passover, the priesthood, the temple, the sacrificial system, the the bronze serpent, the day of atonement, and so on. The point is this, the Old Testament is really about him. Do you know what the Old Testament is about? It's not just the history of Israel. Rather, God was using the tragic fallen history of Israel to show man's complete desperation and need for salvation. And then God used the story of Israel to progressively unfold how exactly that salvation would come, how he would bring them salvation. And it would all come about through one seed, one person. And that his person, his work, his righteousness would be enough to completely restore this world and all of God's people. This Old Testament, in a word, it's all about promise. And that promise all centers on this one figure, this one person. He is the world's only hope. And the only question, I guess, to ask after that is, well, like, when? When's he going to show up? Israel wondered, okay, it's our only hope now. When will we see him? And well, one way Israel would know would be through a forerunner. And that's how the Old Testament ends. The, the final verses of the final book of the Old Testament tell of this, Malachi chapter 4. God says he will send his messenger, one who will come in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready the way of the Lord. When you see him, well, then you know that the day of the Lord is near. And that is literally how the Old Testament ends. Israel is still in devastation. They're back in the land, but they will never regain true national sovereignty. They will always be oppressed and laid low. And after this, they get another 400 years of silence. God says nothing more. They don't need anything more. He's told them everything they need at this point. They just need to sit and wait and let it purify their hope for this this coming Messiah. You see, all these promises build, they climax, they crescendo to this coming seed. And Israel is left for 400 years to place all of their hope in him. But God would not stay silent forever. And in due time, the day of the Messiah would dawn. And this this most amazing thing happens in your Bibles. As you turn just one flip of a page from Malachi to Matthew. You just turn one page, but you, you, you pass from the world of promise to the world of fulfillment. And if you haven't figured it out already... That fulfillment is all found in one person, and it's Christ Jesus. And so we flip that page and we read Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I hope now you can, you can appreciate a little more how Loaded with significance, those few words really are. I mean, the first verse of the New Testament tells you everything you need to know about this man, Jesus. He's actually not just a man, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. In in reality, he's something more. He is the fulfillment 
of all of God's promises. And that's what the New Testament is about. The Old Testament in one word is promise. The New Testament in one word is fulfillment. In Christ Jesus, all the promises of God come to light. What do you get in the Bible? 66 books written by 40 plus authors over 1,500 years, three continents, three languages. It's the most diverse work of antiquity by a long shot. Yet they all somehow tell the same story and they give the same message. It all centers on the same person, God the Son, Christ Jesus. This Bible is the self-disclosure of the true and living God in the incarnate person of Jesus. And when it comes to the Old Testament, as we have seen, not every single verse is directly about Jesus, but every road, every tributary leads to him. And Christ himself made this clear to two men on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. Didn't he say to them, Luke 24, 27, says then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. I wondered how many of the same verses he used that we use today. You know, this main highway of the Old Testament, it's all about Jesus. It just comes in promise form. And then you get to the New Testament and the first stop of fulfillment is again this, Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And from the very first verse of the New Testament, Jesus is presented as who? It's the long-awaited Messiah of the Old Testament. Understand this. That means everything the New Testament says about who Jesus is, what he does, what he's about, it's colored by all of those Old Testament promises, the Old Testament expectation of the Messiah. So it kind of sounds like you should probably know the Old Testament expectation of the Messiah. If you were to appreciate him, because the New Testament does not present Jesus out of thin air. It presents him after thousands of years of hope and promise. And this also means when we read the New Testament, we're really looking at an iceberg. Look at a verse like Matthew 1.1. On the surface, it seems so small and insignificant, but under the surface, there's a continent of significance. That, that deeper significance, it seems worth studying and appreciating and grasping. So much so that, in fact, starting next week, Lord willing, we're going to begin our own exposition through Matthew's gospel. I told you at the beginning, I had another reason for preaching this message, and this is it. I secretly just gave you a background study to Matthew's gospel. Because Matthew, far beyond all the other gospels, goes to great lengths to make sure you know who Jesus is. He's the Messiah of promise. Thousands of years, hundreds of verses of promise. That's all Jesus. That's what Matthew wants you to know. That the age of promise is over, in a sense. The age of fulfillment has begun. And it all centers on Jesus. We'll say more next week, but Matthew is undeniably the most Hebrew gospel. He is constantly connecting the words and works of Jesus back to the Old Testament, 
to promise. Why does he do this? Well, for one, that his brethren, Israel, Jews, might come to accept Jesus as their Messiah. What's so sad and amazing, though, is that the tragic history of Israel continues. Because Matthew, more so than the other Gospels, highlights the stunning rejection of Jesus by Israel. This is the shocking twist that none expected, that that when this long-awaited seed finally came, he would be missed and then rejected and crucified by his own people. But Matthew writes so that we might not make the same mistake. You want the message of Matthew in a short phrase? It might be this. Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts like Israel did. You hear his voice in the scriptures. You see in his death and his resurrection, the only path to eternal life. So when you hear it, don't turn away. Don't harden your heart. Don't cling to your sin, but, but yield to him. Come to believe in this long-awaited one. This morning, you've heard the voice of God to you about his son. Not for me, from the Old Testament scriptures. You've seen him today by way of promise. Already, don't close your heart to him. Let this thousand-year-old testimony of God pry open your heart to receive him. You know, today we get the privilege of seeing the next stage of the revelation of God's salvation. It's recorded in the New Testament. It was given to us that we might not miss Jesus, but believe in him and enter into his salvation. That only happens, though, when you see him for who he really is. Believe in him and entrust your life to him. And so it's my prayer as we begin and go through Matthew's gospel that as a result, some of you for the first time, but you yield more and more and more of your life to this Jesus. Who is he? He's the seed of the woman, virgin born, Emmanuel, son of David, son of man, son of God, son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, lion from the tribe of Judah, lamb of God, good shepherd, great high priest, suffering servant, chief cornerstone, light of the world, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, king of kings, lord of lords, great I am, anointed one, Christ Messiah, savior. And he's worth your life. And Matthew will show us to him. Until then, let's pray. Our Lord God in heaven, we we thank you for the testimony of your word. It's true, it's clear, and it's powerful. And you've given it to us as a mercy. You've chosen to disclose yourself. We are all fallen. We, like sheep, have all gone astray. And each of us has, has turned to his own way. But we thank you, Lord, that you do not leave us in that state. That From the beginning, you left us with promise. Not just Israel, all the nations find promise in this seed, this, this coming one, Savior, Messiah, King. It's our only hope. We confess our own sin before you, Lord. We, we cannot pass judgment on Israel's history because we are no better and no different in our own lives. How easily and quickly we go astray and wander and serve that which is not God. But your mercy continues, you're patient with us, and your salvation now, we don't have to look forward to, we get to look backward to. It has come already in in the person of Christ Jesus. 
Lord, I pray you open our minds and our hearts to this one, to behold wonderful things about him, but yet also to respond as we see him that, that we would believe. And I pray already this morning, if some are here who do not know him, that you would break down the walls of their heart, that they might see that this is the only hope and the only way for all that is wrong with this world. When they come to yield to him, may we all yield to him and entrust him our lives, learning more about him and, and just responding in, in true worship and, and life lived uh, here and now. Look forward to the eternal life he brings, but until then, Lord, just, just bless us as we seek to, to live for this Christ our King. In his name we pray. Amen.